Well, hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stanmore Major. And this episode, we're continuing the book 15,000 Miles in a Catch. We're on part 12 and on chapter 8. And for all those who have gone over already to Patreon to help support the podcast and keep these books available for the next generation, my great thanks. And now, on with the story. Chapter 8 I am sure my readers, who by this time have become accustomed to Kogulian weather, will be surprised if I do not immediately record another gale. Have no fear. The gale was not long in coming, though at the start of our trip to another part of the wild coastline we lay becalmed near Bulford Rock. In spite of the wind having dropped, the sea was very rough, and we were afraid of drifting onto the rocks. We knew those Kogulian calms, and when we read the barometer, we waited for the inevitable north gale. It came in a few hours with all its old bluster and boisterousness. Sailing under a small sheet, we drifted steadily for shore, and the lookout man kept shouting his abominable intelligence. Then the wind played its usual game of blind man's buff and jumped to the southwest with a romp and a roar, churning up the sea and catching us between the two rolling tides, so that our ship was hurled this way and that in a giddy, crazy, staggering dance. It was simply diabolical, and the only thing we could do was to pour oil on the sea to soften its wrath. I believe landsmen regard this oiling of the waters as a myth invented by writers of fiction. Let me assure them that it is really done in time of stress, and that more than once we owed our escape from an ugly sea to this quaint and primitive custom. Fortunately, the change of wind enabled us to stand out from the shore, and when the gale had spent its strength, we were out of sight of land. For two days more we beat up and down until we saw land again, and finally we anchored at Grave Island after six days at sea, during which we had gone no further than what we would have done on one day's sailing in fair weather. We found anchorage here, and I went ashore on Grave Island and found the relics of the dead, which had given the mournful name to this lonely place. There were about thirty graves, and buried there were the bones of American whalers who had made this small island their headquarters, and who, by accident and disease, had ended their life of adventure, and of the liberty of the sea, and found their last anchorage upon these rocks. It was strange to stand among these graves, and to think of the rough, hardy men who, half a century ago, had stood here from time to time, between the whale hunting to lower one of their comrades and to cover his stark body with a little earth and a few boulders. Strange. These men, who would have been called wild men in any civilised society, who lived for years together on their ships or in the world's most lonely places, who were under no law save their own self-discipline, whose language no doubt was coarse and sometimes brutal, whose way of life was hard, savage and as elemental as that of the Scandinavian sea lovers when history first began, had been touched with sentiment and with religious faith when they put the poor dead clay of their comrades into these quiet graves. They had carved crosses to put above the graves, and on the beams they had cut Christian texts of pious resignation and hope. I could still read some of the dates and names and texts, though many of the crosses had fallen face downwards, gnawed through at the base by rabbits. The oldest date I found was 1832, and the newest was 1875. Some of the crosses were well carved and decorated with anchors, cut out of copper and wood and nailed on. Rest in peace, be ye also ready, 
We fade as the leaves. These were some of the words I deciphered as I stood on this little desert island among the graves. There was one small grave of a boy of ten years of age, a poor little cabin boy who had been brought all this wild way and then had died. What strange lives and strange adventures had ended on this rock amidst the internal turbulence of the sea. I went away from Grave Island rather pensive and with serious thoughts. I passed over to Hog Island, and here were relics of other whaling and sealing adventurers. I found the ruined remains of a hut, three or four big kettles, a brick furnace and lots of spars. In the ruined hut I found a forge, an anvil, pieces of chain and an old capstan, used, no doubt, to drag dead whales ashore. Probably these things had been handled on many a day in fair weather and foul by the men who now lay quiet in those graves I had seen. To me, a seaman and an explorer and a sealer, each link in those broken chains, each rotten spar, the rusty anvil and the odds and ends of rubbish were eloquent of a life such as my comrades and I were now leading. They spoke to me of hard toil, of anxious hopes, of the rough, free days, and across the bridge of time I met the spirits of those old whalers who had now sailed into other waters in which they lay too for eternity. After we had snuggled under the cliffs of Grave Island for two or three days, we went round to Observatory Bay. We reached this on the night of the 15th of October, having passed a huge uncharted rock in the fairway which lay in wait for any unwary ship which trusted with too much faith to previous soundings. At Observatory Bay we were rich in coal, for the Germans had left a store round the hut in which I had spent my eight lonely days putting the house in order, and where the white face at the window had scared me so horribly. Here we pitched our camp and built up the shed and furnace which we dignified by the name of Factory. It was a primitive structure, but it took us days of hard work and we were proud of it. When it was finished and ready for blubber melting, we hoisted the French flag over it, and I can give you no idea of the pleasure and pride with which our eyes gazed upon the blue, red and white of our national emblem, which flapped above our heads in the gusty wind. That flag stood for France, and all the traditions and glory of France, and all the sentiment of race and faith, which inspires the hearts of Frenchmen. We felt more at home, less isolated from the world, when that brave flag was mast high. Unfortunately, it was a bad place for seals, though a good place for boiling their blubber. There were very few to be seen around, and we knew that we should have to go hunting in other waters. But meanwhile, I toiled very hard in the German house, which I used as a workshop, and I had a perfect orgy of cask-making. I enjoyed myself in a quiet, industrious way. With my staves and hoops spread about me, I was like some demon carpenter, rapping and tapping in that lonely hut, where the mice still played, watching me from their holes with blinking eyes. I made no less than sixty casks here, and I can tell you frankly, they looked very fine when they were all set out in a row. It would take a good deal of oil, to fill them, a good many seals to provide the blubber, a lot of smoke and fire to make the oil, and tremendous hunting campaigns to capture the seals. But when all was done, and those casks were filled, we should have a fine cargo in the hold of the J.B. Charcot. This brought us to the last fortnight in October, and it was splendid weather. 
I hope my readers will be amazed when I tell them that we had eight fine days without one gale. I think this must have been a record for the island of desolation. On the 2nd of October, I left on a boat trip with Agne. We rounded Molloy Point and pitched our tent on this part of the coast, not without danger and difficulty. We had a very rough landing through the heavy swell rolling into Royal Sound and breaking upon the boulder-strewn beach, but Agne and I were getting very expert in the handling of our boat, and by good luck we managed to ride on one of the rollers to the beach and then, springing out, dragged it ashore. We dumped down our stores on the rocks and surveyed our surroundings. A high range of cliffs bristled with jagged peaks above us like iron battlements and bastions of a vast fortress guarding the coastline. But away to the east of us, the ground was flat and we could see right across the land, northeastward, to where the sea broke upon the rounded headland. Due north from where we lay was the vast range of that high, confused mass of mountains pierced by the gorge through which Agne and I had walked from Elizabeth Harbour some months before and crowned by the chimney-top peak and Mount Crozier and Castle Mount, grim and awful like Dante's dream of the mountains of hell. An amusing incident occurred soon after we were safe ashore. Our bags lay rolled up together on the rocks and straight towards them came a big male sea elephant with his huge carcass moving swiftly over the ground, for some reason which I cannot explain unless he took our stores for a sleeping seal or some beast with whom he could engage in deadly combat, the old fellow was evidently aroused to curiosity and anger. I wanted very much to see what he would do, but Agne, seized with a sudden fear that our provisions would be swallowed at one gulp in the gaping jaws of the elephant, began to shout wildly and hurled stones at him so that eventually he retired. I knew that we were near the spot which the Americans had used as their headquarters in the expedition of 1874 to observe the famous transit of Venus, and I now set off to find any relics of them that had been left. We soon discovered a number of barrels of cement, or rather we found the cement hard and solid as rock from which the staves had rotted away. There was also a stove with rabbits living in the oven. I could not help smiling at that sight. So little accustomed were the rabbits to the ways of man that they had actually made a home in an oven in which no doubt many of their respected ancestors had been roasted. Among other odds and ends, found here was a tripod that had been used for a telescope. The next morning, although it was rather rough, we started before sunrise on foot for Prince of Wales Foreland by an unmapped route. The sun rose soon afterwards, and a scene of beauty and splendour surrounded us. The golden arrows of the sun shot upon the distant peaks, which broke them into dazzling points of light. The basalt cliffs sparkled with 10,000 facets of polished stone. The snow-capped summits of the high mountains were like fleecy clouds in the blue sky, and the waters of the sea were dancing in the sunlight. It was a morning and a scene which made the heart of man leap with the sheer joy of life, and yet neither Agne nor I was very joyous. I had never been careless or high-spirited since Henry had become unwell, and the thought of his drawn and haggard face, of his sleepless nights, and of his loss of flesh and strength made me very worried and anxious. Agne was a sad and serious man for quite another reason. A day or two ago, the crew of the J.B. Charcot 
had run out of tobacco and it was a tragedy to them. Agne bore his loss like a stoic, but I knew he was suffering severely with a craving which he could not satisfy. As for Jean Bontemps, our bosun, he was becoming a dazed and broken man. It was real torture to him. He cut out the pockets of his clothes which had become impregnated with tobacco and chewed them until they were tasteless. He even broke up the bowl of a clay pipe and chewed those pieces until they also were of no use to him. Then he brooded and drooped and lost some of his old grip upon the plain duties of life and sank into a bewildered, muddle-headed state of mind. If Henry told him to do such and such a thing, he would say, Yes, Captain, and an hour later, perhaps, my brother would find him doing something quite different and often something quite unnecessary, painfully and laboriously. I had never quite realised before what slaves men become to this craving, and it made me thankful that I was free of the habit. This, however, is a digression, and I must return to our tramp. The whole line of the coast was strewn with wreckage, the shattered timbers of old boats that had once been cast ashore on these cruel rocks. There were also the bleached bones of hundreds of great seals, showing what huge hunts had taken place here in former times, and how many of those elephants had been massacred. Yet the coast was still crowded with seals, great nurseries of youngsters who had just left their mothers and were gambling about like young puppies, barking and playing pranks in the way I have previously described. They were a little shy of us at first as we walked among them, but they did not scurry away, but permitted us to stroke them. All the males, however, young as they were, were fiercer than the females and darted their heads out at us and opened their jaws and barked. It would not be long before these lusty young fellows became warriors like their scarred and wounded sires, whose spirit they had inherited and whose fierce deeds they would seek to emulate. But the little girl seals were gentle and timid, and it was pretty to see them getting playful and coy as we stroked their hair. They were not very beautiful, but by a little imagination one might have believed them to be the mermaids of old mythology, whose siren songs enchanted Ulysses and his comrades as their ship sailed among them. We found two uncharted points on the coast, against which the sea dashed with heavy breakers, and as we tramped on we came to a big stream pouring into the sea down a valley in the hills. Near here we came across the skeleton of a ship's keel. She had been a sailing boat, a schooner, I should say, of about 150 tons, and now was nothing but a rotten carcass, with a few gaunt ribs sticking out. There was also a good deal of other wreckage here. We walked on, and on, and then we had the greatest sensation of our lives. I shall never forget the profound and startling emotion of that moment. Even now, as I write, with the memory of it vivid in my mind, my heart beats a little quicker at the thought of that thrill, of that shock of surprise and gladness. It was about noon, and Agni and I were thinking of the meal which it was time to have, and we were both silent, gazing ahead of us and across the plateau to the northeast. Suddenly, we both stopped, with low exclamations, inarticulate and emotional, and our eyes stared in a northeasterly direction as though we had both been bewitched. I think I was the first to speak. Smoke, I said. It's a steamer. There, away on the far horizon, was a trailing wisp of smoke, curling steadily round the foreland, as it seemed to us, though it was far from the coastline. Only a thin reef of smoke, but to us, exiles on a desert island for ten long months, wanderers in a world of loneliness, 
It brought a message of humanity and gladness, so swift and sudden and unexpected that we were spellbound. Agne gave expression to his own dearest hope. Captain, he said, I would give anything if that boat came in and brought some tobacco. We were both wildly excited, and not for a single moment did our eyes leave the trail of the smoke. Our very souls kept vigil over that little smudge of moving shadow against the grey-blue sky. Is she coming round? We asked the question with almost torturing anxiety. Secretly, each of us believed that she was a steamer on her way to Australia, but we thrust the horrible thought away from us and buoyed ourselves up with the hope that she would come into one of our bays, bringing new faces, new voices, new friends, news of the outside world and treasures for exchange to us poor lonely vagabonds who, truth to tell, were getting very weary of our loneliness and craved for other society than our own. So we kept watching and waiting, and presently we were dismayed and ready almost to weep because the smoke was lost to our view behind the headland. Oh, she's going away, cried Agne dolefully, and I shared his misgivings and became very gloomy. But I said, let us wait, my friend. Perhaps she will come round the coast and we shall see her in the sound here. We calculated the time she would take to get round. It would take a long time and we were very impatient. Let us have that meal, I said. It will help pass the time. So we sat down and pulled out our hard old biscuits and our stale tinned meats and munched away, wondering and wishing about the steamer, conjuring up the delight of grasping the hands of good seamen, perhaps from France of dining on board with these new friends, of telling them all our own adventures. Several times, just to tease poor Agne, whose lips were watering at the thought of tobacco, and sometimes, because my hope made fools of my eyes, I shouted out that I could see the boat again. At last, I really saw her. Yes, there was no mistake. There was the trailing smoke wreath creeping round Prince of Wales' foreland. Oh, the goodness of it! There she is, I said, but Agne thought I was joking again. I had said it too often to be believed. But then he too saw the steamer. We could see her black hull now, and he jumped up like a madman and danced wildly about the rocks, waving his arms and crying, Tobacco! Tobacco! Unluckily, we had left our rowing boat at Molloy Point before setting out on our tramp so that we could not row over to her when she came nearer to us. We saw her pass Murray Island, Long Island, Boyle Island, keeping clear of all those islets which strew the sound. It seemed as if she was steering straight for Observatory Bay. Agne was rushing about, gathering kelp with which he made a pile. I knew what he was about. He wanted to make a bonfire to signal to that passing vessel. I was tempted to let him set fire to that stuff, to see the flames lick up as a message that human beings were on the rocks, offering salutation to the newcomers. But then... I stopped him, sternly and just in time. It would have been horrible if that steamer had put round, with the idea that we were shipwrecked and had herself run aground on this brutal coast. She disappeared at last behind Grave Island, and we were uncertain whether we should ever see her again. Possibly she had put in for repairs into one of the innumerable bays of Kogulian, and having made them, would steam away again before we had speech with her. That was a melancholy prospect, but again, we played with hope. We could do no more exploring now. We must get back swiftly to the J.B. Charcot. We must tell our comrades of the stranger within our gates. We must follow that steamer as fast as our legs would carry us over the wild ground. 
So, always talking of the steamer and tobacco, Agne and I trudged back to Malloy Point, where we found our boat again. But we were overtaken by the worst of bad luck. A great gale broke loose upon us and a heavy snowstorm enveloped us. It snowed and snowed till we could see nothing but those falling white flakes and the soft white carpet that was now upon the black rocks. It snowed until there were white hills around us. It snowed until we were nearly buried. If we had dared to attempt a boat journey, we should have crashed upon a rock and drowned. So all day long, we lay in our tent, cursing our fate, thinking and talking of the steamer and kicking the canvas to relieve it of its white weight. It was a stupid business, this kicking the snow off our tent, while perhaps our comrades were fraternising with the crew of that good steamer. Presently, the snow melted, melted on top of us and melted all round us, while the gale blew more fiercely, so that soon we were wet even through our sleeping bags, wet to the skin on the soppy ground. We had nothing to do but eat. We made a menu to last throughout the day. One hour we had a cup of tea. The next hour we had a cup of cocoa. At the third hour, by way of a change, we took a cup of tea again. At the fourth hour, we greeted another cup of cocoa with enthusiasm, and so on, until we became tired even of eating and drinking, though it is wonderful how it made the time go. All that day and night, Agne and I chatted more volubly than usual, and to keep our thoughts away from the steamer, which made us get too excited and impatient, I spoke to my comrade of Paris, to which he had never been, and told him about the theatres and the fine shops, and the Bois de Boulogne and the life of the city. We also read a little of Voltaire and La Fontaine, which we had carried with us, and Agne was an interesting and original critic, viewing things with the simple unbiased mind of a seaman who had never been to Paris. The next day it was still too rough for the boat, but our impatience would no longer be restrained, and we decided to go to the summit of the high hill near the bay, from which we might search around for any sign of the steamer. It was a stiff climb, 1,500 feet up those black, slippery rocks, and the wind was so terrific that sometimes we had to crawl on our hands and knees, and even to lie flat on our stomachs to prevent ourselves from being blown down the precipices. At last, we reached the topmost peak, and with my telescope, I swept the waters of Observatory Bay. There... To my great joy and to Agni's uproarious delight, I saw the steamer anchored close to our own little ship. It was a noble sight for eyes, sore with loneliness. The island of desolation was no longer so desolate. Oh, it was a wondrous place, for my brother was receiving visitors. Goodness knows how Agne and I scrambled down the mountain again, sliding and slipping and tumbling and running and bounding until we reached our boat. We were in a fever of excitement, but it was too late and too dark to roam homewards that night, and we had to wait until the following morning to pack up and get away. Our original intention had been to explore the surrounding country extensively, but of course with that steamer in Observatory Bay, such a thing was impossible to human nature and Agne and I had only one thought, to get back. Owing to the wind, we rode for ten hours until we were utterly exhausted, but at last we came alongside the J.B. Charcot. The steamer had gone. Fortunately, as we found out, only to find a good place for an anchorage and headquarters, and as I stepped on deck, 
Henry handed me a packet of letters from France, and to Agne, a roll of tobacco. Well, that's the end of today's chapter, and we're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship, and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.